0: It's Monday, April 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been accused of inappropriate conduct by a woman who says he put his hands on her shoulders, smelled her hair, and slow kissed the top of her head. Biden, for his part, said that he does not believe he ever acted inappropriately. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for how this could impact his possible presidential bid and more. Next, Mike Pence laid out the goal last week of sending American astronauts to the moon by 2024. While this could be a major achievement, it also comes with a gamble. It's going to take a lot of money and time to complete projects needed to meet the deadline. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, joins us for this new space race to the moon. Finally, where is the high-tech transportation future we were promised? There are no jetpacks, no flying cars, but we are almost there on self-driving cars. Corinne Iozio, editor at Popular Science, joins us to break down how close we are to getting those jetpacks and more. She'll also tell us why PopSide declared in 1924 that flying cars were only 20 years away. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: Very unexpectedly and out of nowhere, I feel Joe Biden put his hands on my shoulders, get up very close to me from behind, lean in, smell my hair, and then plant a slow kiss on the top of my head. Joining
0: us now is Ginger Gibson political reporter for Reuters. We've been talking a lot about former Vice President Joe Biden possibly getting into the 2020 race for president. We're now finding out that he has been accused of some improper conduct. Former Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor in Nevada, Lucy Flores, wrote an article for The Cut called An Awkward Kiss Changed How I Saw Joe Biden. And in her account, she alleges that at a campaign stop that Joe Biden was there to help promote her. He came up behind her, put his hand on her shoulders, And then kind of smelled her hair from behind and kissed her the back of her head. The former vice president has released a statement saying that he never believes he ever acted inappropriately. And he said that women should relate their experiences and men should pay attention. And he will personally tell us a little bit about this controversy and how Biden and his team are handling it so far.
2: You're right. This is one of the things that the Biden camp knew had the potential to be coming. Biden is an outgoing guy. He's a toucher, a hugger, as we might have called him in a, in a previous iteration. And there was acknowledgement and a concern that as his campaign started to ramp up, you could hear women that had not appeared to be opposing such conduct or such touching in the past vocalizing some unhappiness about it now. We understand what it amounts to is sort of he is accused of having put his hands on his shoulder and kissed the back of her head in sort of a maternal kind of way. And so this was a concern. We saw their response saying now women should be saying if that makes them uncomfortable, women should be coming forward and telling men that they don't like that and men should be listening. So this is the first. It's the first real test for his campaign that hasn't even started yet to see <laughs> Right, how they can handle that.
0: In her article, Lucy Flores even wrote about this history of things like this. Uh, ben nuzzling on the neck of Defense Secretary's wife, kissing a senator's wife on the lips, nuzzling female constituents, calling it a quote-unquote creepy behavior. Is something like this disqualifying for somebody trying to run on the Democratic side for the president?
2: It's probably not disqualifying at this point. You know, as someone who has been around the vice president, who has a a picture with the vice president's arm around her neck. From when I was younger, before I was a reporter, lots of other women would say that it wasn't creepy, but it was sort of endearing. So I think that we're gonna hear that from other women as well. It's not a disqualifier. And defenders of the former vice president have been quick to point out that it's not in the same league of things that the current president has been accused of. He's never been accused of making an advance at women or trying to make a move on them in a way that was sexual that this was just his nature. So it doesn't appear to be disqualifying unless he handles it badly. Uh, right. And then when you handle it badly, anything could be disqualifying.
0: Let's move on to some news about the Mueller report, but we haven't had a chance to really touch on it yet. There's a new NBC News Wall Street Journal poll that says 29% of Americans say they believe the president has been cleared of wrongdoing, but 40% say they do not believe he was cleared of wrongdoing. And the AG, William Barr, said he's going to release a redacted report by mid April. We don't know if Democrats are going to be satisfied who are calling for the entire thing to be made public.
2: Well, we can be clear. Democrats are not going to be satisfied if they've called for the whole thing to be made public or so just made available to Congress. Congress has the ability to hold confidential secret documents they do every day. They believe that the Attorney General should at least give members of Congress the ability to review an unredacted version that if it can't all be made public, that at least they should be able to see larger pieces of it. This is definitely an argument that they're going to be having for weeks or maybe months to come. You point to those poll results. You know, Reuters, Ipsos had a similar poll. Almost half of the American public still believe that the president did something wrong even after this report was released. It's clear that you can put a report out, but you might not be able to change the minds of people. That's going to take a lot longer for the president to do.
0: And that's the exact point I wanted to make, too. I feel the Mueller report has become one of those things that really is not going to move the needle anywhere again. Uh, the president and his supporters claim this as vindication. Democrats and the president's detractors want to see the report so they can find any little nugget really to throw against him. So who knows where we go there. And and then the final thing, just after this whole Mueller report now has kind of come out and the president has largely been uh, exonerated of, 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 you know, many of the charges there. Um, his priorities now. He's moving on to health care. He wants to get rid of Obamacare completely. Uh, the White House is pushing the Fed to cus- cut interest rates. And then back to the border, he's threatening to close ports of entry on the U.S. border and is also wants to cut aid to Central American countries.
2: That's right. You know, any president in their last two years of their first term has a harder time getting things done. Uh, they are in uh, the beginning stages, and then the throes of running for re-election. And this president, like the one before him, has lost control of a chamber of Congress, which makes it even harder to get things done. But he is talking about things like the border, like health care, like infrastructure. Uh, this is still going to be very difficult for him to accomplish any big legislative uh, victories in the next two years.
0: Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me. But at the direction of the president of the United States, it is the stated policy of this administration and the United States of America to return American astronauts to the moon within the next
1: five years.
0: Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios. We're going to be talking about some fun stuff in space. The Trump administration has a new goal of returning astronauts to the surface of the moon by 2024, five years earlier than they had planned before. A lot of people are saying it could be a huge gamble. There's a lot of risks, mostly in the area of time and money. Can we meet a deadline? So Mike Pence, he chairs the National Space Council, was given a speech the other day and was laying out some of these priorities. What do we know? So
3: we know the goal that they've established, which is to put astronauts back on the surface of the moon by 2024. We know that Mike Penn said provocatively, NASA needs to focus on the mission, not the means. Basically firing a warning shot across the bow of the contractors that NASA is using for their new rocket system. That was especially provocative because he was speaking in Alabama at the rocket center where Boeing is building their new rocket known as the Space Launch System or SLS. Boeing's not having a good no, time of it not. in general. So that was a bit interesting. SLS is over budget and long overdue. So it's not without merit that he discussed that, but they basically said either SLS will get it done or we'll rely on a private company's rocket. It's not as if this technology doesn't exist. It's not like we have to go out and invent warp drive. We've been to the moon before. We can get there.
0: What is in the mindset of the administration? Because we know that this administration is putting a lot of focus on space with the creation of the Space Force. They want to be a dominant player in this area. We want to be able to fend off our adversaries, uh, most notably China and Russia in this space also. So what do they want to accomplish with the purpose of getting to the moon?
3: It seems that the long-term goal is a permanent human presence on the moon with an orbiting outpost known as the lunar gateway that would support such missions and also support deep space missions. So you could think of it as kind of like the new space station just further out in space. That would be the way station where people would go and detach a spacecraft from and then potentially go to Mars or go to the lunar surface. Mike Pence did not lay out exactly what the astronauts would do when they get there in 2024. He did lay out the long term vision, which is returning astronauts to the moon, establishing a permanent human presence, and then exploring deep space and going to Mars. Now, that might sound new and bold, but that's actually been NASA's challenge given to it by different White Houses, dating back, I think, all the way to George H.W. Bush. So what's changed over time is the spacecraft, the rocket, the budget, and the timetable, and that's where they've gotten hung up. So the NASA administrator, Jim Bridenstine, who's a former fighter pilot and a former congressman, was very rah-rah, we will do this to the vice president after the speech. And he seems to understand, I think, that NASA's culture needs to change. And when you try to change an organization's deeply entrenched culture in order to get something done in such a short time frame, that's where I think a lot of space observers are correct to be pretty skeptical.
0: There's a lot of things to do within five years. Is that a timetable that can be met?
3: You know, I put that question to a number of experts both outside of NASA, in NASA, people in the commercial spaceflight industry. The commercial spaceflight industry was thrilled about this. They see this as a huge boon for space exploration and something that can get done with a public-private partnership. The outside observers basically said, yes, we can do this, but it requires major changes. For example, the space launch system, the way they are testing it, this thing involves combining two giant white solid rocket boosters on the side of it. Right, right. And then it had the main engines attached to the shuttle. Basically think of it as combining all of those together into one rocket. And they have been testing each component separately as part of their safety checks. What NASA could do is shift to the Apollo model, which was we gotta get the the, the moon before the Russians do, no matter what. And they build it and basically test it on the launch pad for 10 seconds or launch one of the rockets on an uncrewed mission as the test. So that would significantly alter the timeline, but it would also alter their tolerance for risk. It's not an accident that 2024 was picked. President Trump we know has had conversations where he's brought up, hey, can we go to Mars by 2020? Hey, what can we do in space that would be really cool while I'm still president? Right. And he would theoretically, if re-elected, he would still be president in 2024 and be able to celebrate that if they met that or exceeded that deadline by doing it earlier.
0: Well, I mean, Andrew, you mentioned it in previous discussions many times that 2019 was going to be a big year for space. And in the years after that, just a lot of big movement in this area. Exciting to see what is are all these possibilities. But you're right. I mean, there's an expedited timeline now and uh, still a lot of work to be done. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks
1: for having me. Solid state materials can run hotter, and the hot heat, obviously, is energy. The hotter something is, the more energy it can hold. So we know how to get energy into these new solid state materials. But right now, scientists are struggling to make one that actually holds on to that charge for long enough to have a takeoff or even a safe flight.
0: Joining us now is Corinne Iozio. Deputy editor for Popular Science. I love these stories. We have to take a look back to our past to realize what we got wrong about the future. And I also love it when there's like a back to the future day and everybody does those things. What did we get right? Do we have those uh, self lacing shoes right or tablets, you know, in movies from our past and how they've come true now? So we wanted to focus a little bit more on transportation. And all those wonderful things we thought we were going to get flying cars, jetpacks, where we are with all that stuff now. In 1924, popular science has been around for a long time. You guys predicted that airborne autos were just 20 years away. And that's one of the first ones. I mean, we're, we're nowhere near getting flying cars just yet.
1: Oh, no, that's absolutely right. And I think if you asked us to make that assessment again today, our answer would again be, I don't know, probably give us 20 years. Yeah, I think right. now that we have a better sense of what is necessary to make these technologies work from an innovation standpoint, but also from just like a regulatory perspective, we're able to make like much more measured and sober assessments of where things really stand in real life.
0: Let's start with the, the flying cars. We're still a possibility maybe of 20 years away, but there are a lot of companies that are trying to make this happen. Right now they kind of take the form of a huge drone where a person can sit in the middle and, but you're basically flying a huge drone kind of thing.
1: Yeah. And I think that's sort of the, the weird middle ground that nobody's quite found yet. Right. You don't want to make a car with wings, but you also don't want to make a plane with wheels, because obviously planes already have wheels, right? What does a flying car even look like? And probably the best vision we have for that is a strong company called TerraFugia, which is a car that has wings that fold out. You actually can see it in those two discrete states, which is different than a lot of the other stuff that we've seen, which just very much look like overblown consumer drones with seats in them.
0: Uber, for its part, says that they want to make a fleet of flying air taxis and have them in L.A. and Dallas by 2020. That's pretty close, and I don't know if that's going to get off the ground.
1: Where do these things take off and land from, and how much noise do they make when they do it? Because you can't have people making huge, tremendous jet engine sounds on suburban streets. It just doesn't
0: work. Right, so what do we need to make these happen? Better batteries and obviously more power for these vertical takeoffs
1: batteries are the biggest problem right because the challenge with powering any of these things is that you have to do better than fuel right fuel is incredibly energy efficient batteries only have about less than 5% of the fuel efficiency of gasoline which means you need a lot of batteries to lift something up off the ground but batteries equal weight which makes the lift harder so we need to get to a place where we have what's called solid-state batteries And the difference here is that solid-state materials can run hotter, and the hot heat, obviously, is energy. The hotter something is, the more energy it can hold. So we know how to get energy into these new solid-state materials, but right now scientists are struggling to make one that actually holds on to that charge for long enough to have a takeoff or even a
0: safe flight. Another one of the big transportation science fiction-y things was traveling in a system of tubes. And we kind of have a little look into that with Elon Musk's Hyperloop. The biggest problem here is money and digging into the ground and actually creating that infrastructure.
1: This is not a train technology problem. We know precisely how magnetic levitating trains work. They exist in other places in the world. The challenge here is you have to put these things under the ground and digging these tunnels is very, very expensive and tremendously time-consuming. Elon, as he often does, is very ambitious with his goals. He says that we can dig these tunnels for about a billion dollars a mile, but then look at things that are actually happening in the real world, like the 2nd Avenue subway in New York City, which the city spent $2.5 billion per mile.
0: To make these things happen, we would need stronger, more durable materials. I, I love in the article how you mentioned that their pods that they're using are made with... Some composite material that they call vibranium, which we all know was featured in the Black Panther movies, things like that. But it's like a carbon fiber material that they use for their products.
1: Yeah, this is another company that's that's not an Elon Musk company. It's Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. And they have this special carbon fiber that is lighter and stronger than steel, which is super great. They also have integrated sensors in it so that they can get constantly a live picture of the integrity of the trains and the cars.
0: And while the Hyperloop thing is more of a mass transit, thing. Jetpacks, like a personal futuristic transportation device. I've always wanted a jetpack since I saw the movie The Rocketeer with Jennifer Connelly and Billy Campbell. That one, you're strapping a rocket to your back. That just screams danger to me all over the place.
1: There's a bunch of challenges here, right? There's the danger of people just flying around in the sky. We can see how responsible we are with even small drones. Now all of a sudden we're going to be shooting exactly. people into the sky. So that's one area of concern. Also, these are literal jets. These are turbo jets. They're incredibly loud. They're very heavy. And even the ones that we have that are actually making their way to market cost something in the neighborhood of a quarter of a million dollars. So yes, jetpacks exist, but jetpacks for people to commute with, certainly not in the next decade.
0: Finally, just the one that is the closest on the horizon, self-driving cars. While we're still a way off from true self-driving cars where you just get in and say, take me home, we are making a lot of headway with it. There's uh, companies like Uber, like Waymo, that's a division of Google, who are pretty close and have already launched some self-driving cars.
1: There are active self-driving taxi programs in Arizona. There's another one in Las Vegas. And, you know, these aren't fully autonomous vehicles. There's still human safety drivers in them. But it's important that these things get on the road because similar to human driver's education, the robots need to learn not just the rules of the road, but also the type of decision-making that a human driver would make to know the difference between a falling plastic bag that they can drive through and a pedestrian that they should break for.
0: Corinne Iozio, Deputy Editor at Popular Science, thank you very much for joining us. Happy to do it. That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.